Welcome back to the fourth WSC. This is session 11, Understanding and Improving Long-Term Outcomes After Sepsis and COVID-19. Before we get going, a word from Radiometer, our exclusive sponsor of this session. At Radiometer, we believe that whatever comes next, we make sure life comes first. We provide powerful acute care, blood, gas, and immunoassay testing solutions. The information these products provide affects the lives of millions of people. And for the healthcare professionals working with patients, life is not given. It is the ultimate goal. We don't just make machines or medical devices. We help clinicians make decisions that save lives, where fast and reliable information is the difference between life and death. What we do is enable people to do their jobs and do them well. What we do is help people to save lives. Thanks again to Radiometer for sponsoring the Congress and this session. Now, let me hand it over to Imrana Malik, moderator of this session and program chair of the 4th World Sepsis Congress. Imrana, take it away. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on your time zone. Welcome to session number 11, Understanding and Improving Long-Term Outcomes After Sepsis and COVID-19. My name is Imrana Malik. I'm a critical care physician with an interest in sepsis and cancer patients. I work at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas in the United States. And I'm also a member of the executive committee of the GSA and co-chair of this Congress. Today, I have the privilege of being your moderator for this session. A few housekeeping items before we get started. We have five wonderful speakers today, and we'll have time for approximately one to two questions for each talk except for those that are pre-recorded. When submitting questions, please start with at speaker to help differentiate those questions from general comments. Now, that being said, it is my privilege to introduce our first speaker. Dr. Jamie Rylance is a reader at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine and welcome clinical research development fellow. He is based in Malawi and leads the lung health group at the Malawi Liverpool Welcome Research Program. His primary research interest is on the pragmatic clinical management of acute illness in low-income countries and how chronic illnesses, including HIV and non-communicable diseases, um, affect clinical management and outcomes. In Malawi, he is examining cardiovascular responses to fluid resuscitation amongst septic patients at mac macrovascular and microvascular levels using echocardiography and sublingual microscopy. Dr. Rylands co-directs the NIHR-funded African Research Collaboration on Sepsis. Um, this multinational platform seeks to establish how high-quality care in critically ill patients in low-income income countries can be delivered. Dr. Rylands' talk today is titled, The Burden of Long-Term Consequences of Sepsis and COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Rylands. Uh, thanks, Imrana. I should say that uh, I have moved post since then. I am going to present data based on my time at Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, but I'm talking for my new post at the World Health Organization, although I am speaking on my own behalf. Um, but thank you for the introduction. Uh, it's a uh, large topic and 10 minutes, so I will get started. Uh, the burden of long-term consequences of sepsis. I think, like all acute diseases, we can see this is a 
a graph that uh, I've borrowed from Hayley Prescott uh, with the health status shown on the y-axis here in, uh, in relative terms compared to the individual's baseline. And we can see that people may or may not be at risk to start with. Usually an acute illness resulting in hospital admission will reduce the health status and there can be immediate sequelae as they recover to lesser or greater extents. Um, of course, the later effects and events Events particularly might promote readmission to hospital uh, and, uh, and worsening of the condition. But there's also sustained reduction in quality of life and long-term sequelae that are possible. I'm going to come back to this graph a little bit later, but I'm going to start with sepsis. We know that sepsis is responsible for a huge short-term mortality, and it's been rec recognised that uh, from systematic reviews such as this, uh, that the 30-day mortality here in randomised control trials, I'll just point you to, is about 21%, uh, but this rises at 90 days to 29%. This uh, meta-analysis uh, uh, doesn't represent many parts of uh, Africa. There's no data to support that, but represents a large part of the rest of the world. And we can see that that longer term mortality is indeed a problem. If we compare uh, two systematic reviews here on the left, Fleischmann, and on the right, uh, Lewis et al., of which I was an author, um, Fleischmann et al. takes mostly uh, those from high income or high middle income countries, uh, looked at 14 studies of sepsis through seven income countries and typically dominated by older ages, those with comorbidities, frequent admission to ITU and hospital mortality here was about 17%. After hospital, particularly amongst the over 65s, 12% or so were re-hospitalized within 90 days, some with sepsis, perhaps uh, uh, some resistance or other pro or resurgence of an infection, uh, but about half dominated by heart failure exacerbations and clearly often new functional impairments. This compares differently to uh, what we found in sub-Saharan Africa from 15 studies, which was dominated by a younger group, particularly because of comorbidities and HIV amongst them, Hospital mortality relatively similar, taking what we could from the sepsis 2 criteria, or if we looked at severe sepsis by old definitions, 39%. But there was a lack of hospital and morbidity outcomes. This now, going back to high-income countries, is from um, a German statutory uh, healthcare insurer with a mean age of 75. And this uh, starts to address a problem that we'll come to later, of having control groups and knowing what uh, the long-term uh, sepsis as opposed to other comorbidities produces in terms of outcomes. And you can see the bottom three lines are uh, sepsis, severe infections and septic shock, and the dotted lines are matched pairs from the same cohort, where you can see out of five years, there's a really significant effect on mortality through whatever endpoints. An attempt to do this, uh, as uh, uh, Imrana mentioned, as part of the ARCS consortium through Malawi, uh, uh, Uganda and Gabon, uh, looked at inclusion criteria from 18 adult patients uh, with suspected infection and a decision to admit to hospital as a proxy for severity. And we exclude maternal and post-surgical uh, causes here. Um, so these are medical causes. And we can see out to one year here, the Kaplan-Meier um, curves are in uh, time in days, the survival probability with a survival of about, or, or a mortality of about uh, 15, 16% uh, in the first month. Uh, but as the other data I've shown you, a considerable post-hospital uh, uh, post mortality rising to 28% or more at one year. Uh, one of the interesting things here is if you split that strata by the time it took for paper 
people to come to hospital before their index illness, the long ones with the longer waits, for example, over four weeks here in yellow, had and continued to have poorer outcomes in terms of mortality. And this is also uh, recognised in readmissions. But we don't know quite, because we don't have a, uh, a cohorts uh, that did not have sepsis, what the identifiable effects were. The effects on people were relatively obvious, but don't represent quite the same as high-income countries. Here you can see uh, the months along the x-axis and the proportion of people self-reporting those symptoms on the y-axis. Obviously, fever was a very core part and very predominant in the acute illness, but then settles down to 3 or 4%, some rumbling effects as time goes on. Myalgia, second one, again, maybe about 10% uh, of people uh, uh, had myalgia at the point at the point of admission, but then once after discharge, uh, a relatively stable but low uh, rates of uh, myalgia. Similarly, confusion uh, and poor concentration, not quite what we expect to see from high-income countries, although headache did seem to be predominant and, con uh, and continue. Again, no control group here, though. So, COVID-19, in order to try and keep to time, we know the uh, effects of COVID-19, uh, at least to some extent. And we're beginning to see what the effects of these uh, new events uh, after acute COVID-19 are. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a US veterans database analysis. So uh, mostly male, mostly black patients at this point uh, from 2020 onwards for two years, about 40% vaccination rate across the board. And you can see a large number of people reported at six months here, the left hand panel being a hazard ratio uh, for all of the uh, categories on the left in terms of the acute medical events that might occur. You see mortality at the very top, but equally cardiovascular uh, and kidney and pulmonary events having a very high uh, um, hazard ratio. What I haven't shown you here is that the outcomes are incrementally worse where there is two rather than one or three rather than two uh, uh, index events. So if there's a reinfection with SARS-CoV-2, uh, this is after all of these adjustments. So reinfection is clearly particularly bad. And those are medical events. But what typically um, is reported in terms of long COVID or what the WHO definition of post-COVID-19 condition are clusters of symptoms. And so this is a definition from the WHO, usually uh, three months from the onset of COVID-19 uh, and symptoms that lasted at least two months cannot be explained by an alternative diagnosis, typified by fatigue, shortness of breath and cognitive dysfunction, but a very large number of symptoms have been reported and clearly can change, either get worse or get better or fluctuate after the index illness. So how many people are affected here? Well, these are the cumulative cases of COVID-19 as of the end of February, 757 million. And a meta-analysis using the WHO definition, looking at 54 studies from 22 countries, estimated 6.2% after symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection had, uh, were consistent with the definition of post-COVID condition. And again, fit, in, fit into uh, fatigue, cognitive problems and shortness of breath. On the right-hand side, perhaps some good news. This is a prospective uh, Swiss cohort of healthcare workers uh, with self-reported symptoms and the viral variants inferred based on the time and the prevalence in, uh, in northeast uh, Switzerland at uh, the time the samples were taken. But you can see the number of symptoms based on wild-type infection in dark red, 
uh, alpha and delta in the mid orange and Omicron next door compared to a control group in blue. And you can see that as time goes on for probably multiple reasons, including the virus, but also the environment in which the virus is affecting uh, the post-COVID condition, rates of symptoms are seeming to reduce. That doesn't, of course, help the people who are already affected. And that seems to be female, females more than males, at least in those over 20, and those who've had a particularly severe index event. Um, if those with uh, post-COVID condition, shortness of breath, fatigue, and cognitive problems occur in 60, 51, and 35% respectively. And the median duration tends to, tends to be associated with the severity of original infection, at least by proxy. So four months in community infections in this study from JAMA nine months in hospitalization patients. And at least up to 12 months, at least 15% of people may still have those kind of symptoms. So a very large uh, and protracted problem for some people. Which effects other meta-analyses have been doing? I show you the most recent one from O'Mahony in eClinical Medicine uh, at the tail end of last year. This is a very large number of people, not according to WHO definition, but after 28 days uh, with a mean follow-up of 126 days. I haven't shown all these symptoms yet, and it combines hospitalized and non-hospitalized individuals. But you can see the pool prevalence rates uh, of self-reported uh, symptoms here. This uh, other risk factors, I think, reinforces what we've already said. Uh, females more than males. Older people seem to be more affected, as do those with BMI over 30, those smokers, and those have been hospitalized, particularly to intensive care units. And vaccination appears to be associated with reduced levels. I talked about uh, having the absence of, uh, of a control group, and that is increasingly difficult as COVID goes on and, and uh, almost nobody is uh, seronegative. Uh, the COVID in Scotland study is worth talking about because uh, this uh, was a relatively large uh, cohort of people followed up at 6, 12 and 18 months. And the pie chart at the right hand side shows you the most recent uh, um, category these people fell into. Uh, fully recovered in 52%, not recovered in 6%, and partially recovered in 42%. And the entry criteria here were, were laboratory-confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infections and the comparators group, which I'll talk about in a minute, those who'd only ever had negative tests. Middle-aged, uh, predominantly female, uh, very uh, largely white population with a relatively large baseline comorbidity at 30%. And this was started early, so relatively low vaccination rates. And the reason I show you most of this is to look at the crude difference at the bottom right. So these are symptoms, tiredness, breathlessness, and confusion or difficulty concentrating. Um, but we're able to calculate the difference between those in symptomatic infection, those who've never been infected. So while, of course, it's reduced that there is a background rate of all these things in people, no matter whether they've had SARS-CoV-2 infections or not, you can see the crude differences. <laughs> and 12.5% attributable, if you like, of tiredness to, to COVID amongst this cohort. So some of the challenges, well, the lack of control groups, I won't harp on about, but that's hampers our uh, understanding by geography and by disease. Uh, over time, uh, particularly COVID-19, a changing pandemic, that becomes more difficult. But I think understanding how and when individual acute diseases uh, lead to specific screening is important. It doesn't address the patient's issues, no matter what the cause, but it is worthwhile mentioning 
post-intensive care syndrome, which affects a large number of ICU survivors, irrespective of cause, and, and has a similar um, tendency to provoke anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, and, and a large number of other symptoms, of which some I've written here, including uh, pain uh, and depression. So difficulties, if you like, uh, or opportunities to uh, identify high-risk patients and, uh, and reduce their likelihood of problems. So I think, in summary, late events uh, in terms of medical events are common, both after uh, sepsis and, and SARS-CoV-2 infection. They're common in severe acute illness. And late effects, as typified by post-sepsis syndrome, uh, post-COVID uh, post condition, are equally common and until now have been relatively under-investigated. We need to think about addressing effects to reduce morbidity and mortality, and that might depend on the baseline risk factors. It might depend on understanding mechanisms more and identifying the post-acute specific pathologies. And we'll definitely need to be focusing on addressing the functional impairment that comes with all of these things, knowing that the, the medical admissions and other medical uh, uh, reasons for for uh, mort mortality morbidity need dealing with as well. But also from earlier, the global disparity in knowledge is, is likely to hamper some of the provision of solutions. And we need to be careful that we are as inclusive as possible in our research efforts. With that, I will thank you and uh, take any questions if there is time. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Rylance, for setting the stage with this overview of the problem. Um, there are no direct questions to your talk in the chat. There is a question about um, testing for sputum bacterial and antibiotic sensitivity in COVID-19 patients, specifically for pneumonia and ICU using uh, patients who are on a ventilator. Um, I don't think it necessarily applies to your, your overall overview or burden of the long-term consequences. Um, I, I think that um, if you have any comments on that particular question, we can certainly take that. If not, I have a, a, a general question for you as well. I think let's go with a general question. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. It sounds, yeah. sounds I, like it's a complex uh, scenario. Yes, absolutely. I think the general question, and I think um, this kind of is addressed by your final slide as well, is um, we've had a difficult time just getting to the burden of sepsis in general, right? And more recently, we've been able to really um, get at the numbers because we, we were able to um, understand what was happening in the low middle income countries. Um, that still needs to be the case when it comes to post-sepsis syndrome and post-COVID uh, uh, complications as well. So how do you think we can move the needle and be able to get a broader picture? How do we get the, that information? Because that's going to help us really understand what we're dealing with. Yeah, so I, I hasten to say uh, uh, more research is needed, but I think specifically cohorts that follow people and understand both the readmission and medical problems as well as the personal uh, and, and potentially debilitating effects of, of the symptoms that they suffer. Um, and I think that has to be done in areas where there isn't the easy option of, uh, I say relatively easy option of having structured uh, electronic health records and insurance systems to allow it because uh, while that's where we get the, the initial data, uh, it as I said, it really does leave gaps. So I think those cohort studies are important. 
it is difficult to find a, um, uh, a, a comparator population, but perhaps we shouldn't be too hung up on that. Perhaps we should be thinking of all of these you know, events uh, we know that a proportion will be either preventable through better care uh, at origin um, or maybe earlier uh, identifiable and then addressable uh, as time goes on. So maybe we should start thinking more about the interventions, uh, where we can impact and how we can identify people as early as possible to give impactful interventions. And of course, that uh, needs to uh, be preceded by randomized control evidence of what is useful and there's a huge amount going on uh, but perhaps not uh, at a very late stage in, in COVID-19 and to some extent in sepsis outside of the ITU. Excellent, definitely agree. Thank you so much for your talk and for your comments thereafter. Um, we will, uh, in the interest of time, move on to our next speaker. Our second speaker is coming to us in a pre-recorded presentation. Dr. Yu Sveersinga is a professor of medicine and chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands. He received his medical training at the University of Amsterdam with additional courses at the Mayo Clinic and the National Institutes of Health in the US. More recently, he completed his MBA in healthcare from Amsterdam Business School. Dr. Veersinga chaired the infection group of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines for the management of sepsis and septic shock in 2021, in addition to the Dutch National Antibiotic Treatment Guidelines on both sepsis and pneumonia. He currently chairs the European Society of Clinical Microbiology and Infectious Disease Study Group for blood, bloodstream infections and endocarditis um, and sepsis. His work has been published in multiple journals, um, including JAMA, BMJ, Lancet, and New England Journal. Dr. Wiersinga's talk today is titled, What is Known on the Pathogenesis of Long-Term Sequelae by Infections and Sepsis? Let's proceed with his talk. Thank you very much for the kind invitation to be part of the World Sepsis Conference. My name is Joost Wiersinga. I'm an infectious disease physician uh, practicing uh, at the Amsterdam University Medical Center. So the given title of my presentation is What is Known on the Pathogenesis of Long-Term Sequelae by Infections and Sepsis? Well, I think it is an extremely important uh, subject and it's great to see that more and more uh, labs around the world do address this important question, but there are a lot of question marks still on the pathogenesis, but there are several hypotheses in this field. And I would like to share some uh, recent studies on the subject and also some of the common hypotheses on the underlying pathogenesis of the long-term sequelae by infections and sepsis. So here you see an, uh, an, uh, a graph of uh, quite a high overgraph of the immune trajectories pre-sepsis, during sepsis, and post-sepsis. So during sepsis, we see in patients this hyperinflammatory response and simultaneously at the same time also this immunosuppressive phase. A lot of patients, of course, will fully recover from sepsis, but there is also this quite large uh, proportion of patients post-sepsis that will suffer from persistent impairments with increased chances for readmission, reinfections, cognitive impairments, brain dysfunction, cardiovascular events, uh, and also other symptoms and sequelae. And of course, the question is, what are the underlying immune 
defects here because if you know that perhaps you can also target that and try to enhance recovery post sepsis so the number one cause of uh, sepsis is pneumonia so uh, just a couple of slides to zoom in on uh, pneumonia and post pneumonia what do we see so this is an, uh, a study about a 10-year mortality after community-acquired uh, pneumonia. A large cohort of uh, patients from Canada with a nice control population. And here you see just the 10-year mortality after community-acquired pneumonia. And you see that the chances of surviving in those CAP survivors is diminished. So... I think that that underscores the notion that pneumonia perhaps is a sign of poor health. Often when we admit patients with pneumonia, we can treat them very well in the ward with just some oxygen, some uh, antibiotics, and they will be discharged. But still, it can be perhaps regarded as a sign of poor health. The same uh, group also showed that there is an increased risk of heart failure after community-acquired pneumonia. And uh, I'd like this uh, editorial note with it uh, that says that perhaps the increased recognition of both the acute and long-term cardiac complications is shifting our concept of pneumonia from acute lung disease to a multi-system problem with adverse chronic health consequences. And of course, that should be considered when formulating post-discharge care plans and preventive strategies. So there's a large cohort study on the risk of heart failure, uh, but we get more and more data. So this article was just published uh, last week, and there it is shown that there's this increased access risk for cardiovascular uh, complications, cardiovascular events, after hospitalization for severe infection, large cohort from the UK Biobank, hundreds of thousands of patients, and then also an invalidated cohort in the, from Finland. And it was shown that among the UK Biobank participants, those hospitalized for infection had an ex excess risk for cardiovascular events, uh, and it was most pronounced during the first month after infection. And the strongest associations were seen for pneumonia and viral infections. So the question is, what could be the mechanisms? So a lot of speculation here, perhaps elevated endovascular inflammation could destabilize atherotic plaque formation. Perhaps also endothelial dysfunction is seen, platelet activation, because those plates are also important to uh, in the host defense against those infections, and that can lead to a coagulation activation. A lot of question marks there. And uh, I think that, as also in general, the sepsis field can learn so much from the uh, COVID uh, experience. And perhaps we can also learn from the post-COVID uh, research and other post-acute infection syndromes for the sepsis field. And I think that uh, we are getting a first glimpse into the mechanisms of post-COVID syndrome. And these are just two uh, examples of two uh, studies. Uh, on the left side, the systemic compartment was uh, studied in 300 patients with COVID with serial time points. Uh, and it was shown that there was a correlation of symptoms with profiling of blood cells and plasma throughout the infection. And that could identify predictors of sustained disease. 
So uh, using this multi-omic technologies, but also uh, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 PCRs, uh, in a certain in some individuals, uh, SARS-CoV-2 fire persistence was seen, but also the formation of autoantibodies. So that was in the systemic compartment. Of course, it's also important to certainly for COVID to look in the lung. And there on the right side, you see this uh, article uh, in which um, individuals with persistent symptoms were shown to have an altered airway immune cell landscape and evidence of ongoing lung damage. So I like this recent uh, review about uh, the pathogenesis of some post-acute infection syndromes. So you can think about post-COVID, but of course also post-EBV, post-Ebola. Uh, there are so many of those post-infection syndromes and um, uh, most probably there are major differences, but also some uh, overlapping uh, pathways that are involved. This is um, one of the figures from that um, uh, review about my biomedical hypothesis that could explain post-acute infection syndromes. Perhaps in a subset of patients, there's persistent infection. Perhaps in another subset of patients, there's autoimmunity. Dysbiosis of the microbiome has also been implicated in those post-acute infection syndromes or just direct tissue damage. And I would like to show you just two examples of dysbiosis and one example of tissue damage in which we have been working. So this is Bob Kohlberg's work. He's a PhD student uh, in our lab. And he asked the questions, if the microbiota signatures are associated with the risk of hospital admissions for infectious disease in the general population. And as a background, we know from studies from the sepsis uh, field that events associated with microbiome disruption, like antibiotic exposure, during hospitalization are associated with an increased risk of sepsis after hospital discharge. And we know that after sepsis in the hospital, if patients are discharged, there's also an increased chance of readmission. These are great studies, but uh, there was no micro direct microbiome analyzed performed in these studies. And we could make use of uh, the Halius cohort that involves more than 4,000 residents of Amsterdam in which the microbiome has been sequenced. In this cohort, there were also more than 150 hospitalizations for infections, again, mainly pneumonia during uh, follow-up. And it was studied if, if hospital admission or mortality due to infectious diseases following a fecal uh, sample, if there was an increased chance. But the answer was yes. We could uh, demonstrate, or Bob could demonstrate, that the gut microbiome composition is associated with protection against hospitalization for infectious diseases. More specifically, it was shown that butyrate-producing bacteria um, uh, are also important as a protective factor. So here you see the cumulative incidence of these hospitalizations for these uh, infections. And then you also see in that in those uh, individuals in which there was a low butyrate producer abundance, so a low level of those anaerobic bacteria, 
that produce these, uh, these butyrate, which are known to be also important in the host defense against defending pathogens, and that you saw that uh, those uh, uh, that part of the microbiome was really uh, low in patients with an enhanced chance for hospitalization. And uh, these uh, findings could be replicated in a large, beautiful cohort from Finland. So just as another uh, example uh, on tissue uh, damage, um, we have seen that uh, skeletal muscle alterations in patients with acute COVID-19 and also certainly after COVID-19 are quite, quite pronounced with a lot of necrosis and also disrupted mitochondrial networks. But then uh, another PhD student in the lab, Brent Abelman, together with the colleagues Michel van Vught and Rob Wust, they performed a muscle PASC study to try to unravel the pathophysiology of post-accessional malaise in post-COVID syndrome. So post-COVID syndrome, I think, is a very large, heterogeneous group of, uh, of uh, people suffering from it. But if you have a subset of those patients in which the post-accessional malaise is more pronounced, those patients were included with controls and then uh, they were put on a treadmill to have a real good exercise. And then one day after uh, uh, the, this, uh, this, uh, this treadmill exercise, uh, blood was taken, uh, but also an, uh, a muscle biopsy. What was uh, seen? Here you see the, uh, uh, well, 21 healthy controls, 25 long COVID patients were included. And you did see that the performance on the treadmill, so the VO2 max, but also the peak power was severely diminished in those uh, patients uh, with long COVID, which makes sense. But uh, when you look at those muscle biopsies, you really do see that post-accessional malaise and post-COVID is associated with severe exercise-induced myopathy and lower mitochondrial respiration, in which in those patients, atrophy of those muscles was seen and also severe necrosis. So those were just two examples uh, uh, of the, of of. of post-infection uh, stage in which, uh, well, in, in the long COVID, we saw uh, this uh, this muscle uh, uh, necrosis. Um, uh, and um, now for the last uh, slide, we're gonna go back to uh, to sepsis, uh, what is known as the bad genesis of, of the sequelae sepsis. Well, also a lot of question marks. So this was an, a study, a review paper uh, published by the European Group on the Immunology of Sepsis, and it tried to identify gaps in sepsis immunology, and of course, try to direct the research agenda in this field. So when we look at post-sepsis, uh, uh, it was stated that it's important to identify and also and characterize uh, typical and rare post-septic immune derailment derangements and also look at, at different time uh, points after uh, sepsis. And then when you uh, monitor those patients and also use high dimensional flow cytometry, functional assays, 
and uh, that include transcriptome and epigenome, but also, of course, metabolomics that could help to obtain a wide picture of the immune status in patients after sepsis. And now several cohorts are actually just doing this. So I think in the coming years, we will learn more and more of the post-sepsis immunology. So as a final uh, slide, I also like this uh, review from Van der Slikke, published in the iBiomedicine, in which uh, uh, this table is shown on the pathogens of sepsis sequelae and the proposed pathophysiology. So in a lot of patients, persistent immune dysfunction uh, is seen due to epigenetic reprogramming, T-cell dysfunction, cellular reprogramming, increased myeloid-derived suppressor cells, increased regulatory T-cells, there's cognitive impairment, some studies show some cerebral inflammation. Cardiovascular disease has been associated in some studies with mitochondrial dysfunction and decreased quality of life uh, and also uh, linked to impaired muscle generation due to mitochondrial dysfunction. So I think these were just some examples uh, on uh, the immunology of, post, uh, of the post-sepsis uh, sequelae. I think that there are some uh, real hypotheses out there now for which could be of use for a subset of patients. Um, and, uh, but there's so much more work to be done. But uh, I think it is great that there are so much more uh, people in the, in the world working on it. So I think our insights will really increase considerably in the years uh, to come. So I would like to thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much to Dr. Wiersinga for that wonderful uh, talk. And as a reminder, this was a pre-recorded um, talk, so we will not be proceeding with any uh, Q&A at this time. So uh, we'll move on to our third speaker who comes to us from the discipline of pediatrics. Uh, Dr. Aaron Carlton is a clinical assistant professor in pediatric critical care at the University of Michigan and a health services researcher at the Susan B. Meister Child Health Evaluation and Research Center. Dr. Carlson received her MD from the University of Toledo and trained in pediatrics at the University of Colorado, completing her pediatric critical care medicine fellowship at the University of Michigan. Dr. Carlton received further research training in health and healthcare research at the Institute of Health Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. Her research focuses on improving long-term outcomes after pediatric critical illness, and uh, especially in sepsis. She strives to understand the factors influencing pediatric sepsis survivorship with a long-term goal of developing and testing clinical interventions to mitigate post-sepsis morbidity. Dr. Carlson's talk today is titled, Toward Tailored Care for Sepsis Survivors. Welcome, Dr. Carlson. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone. Um, my name is Erin Carlton, and I'm from the University of Michigan, and I'm thrilled to be here today to speak with you. Today, I will be talking about approaches to care after sepsis. And as a pediatric intensivist, much of what I will be discussing uh, today comes from the pediatric population, but I think most of it can be applied to groups of all ages. So while much of the conversation this morning has surrounded adult sepsis, I wanted to bring it to attention that each year there are over a million pediatric sepsis cases worldwide. And fortunately, the vast majority of those children survive hospitalization. And with that, there's been increasing recognition of the challenges facing children who survive sepsis and their families. 
And in thinking about survivorship, we can look to our adult colleagues who formalized the concept of post-intensive care syndrome or PICS over a decade ago. They recognize that critical illness, including sepsis, impacts both the family and the survivor and can lead to challenges in mental health, cognition, and physical functioning. And the group also noted that these symptoms persisted after discharge from the acute hospitalization and that these symptoms have no specifically defined time duration and are often long lasting and under-recognized. And however, as the adage goes in pediatrics, children are not little adults. And with that, this holds true when we think about post-intensive care syndrome or the long-term impacts of sepsis. The children that we care for at various stages of growth and development, a two-month-old, a two-year-old, and a 12-year-old are quite different in terms of their normal health and as well as in their terms of, res of response to illness and recovery. And additionally, we recognize the key roles that family plays in a child's health and their recovery from illness. And finally, we know that what happens in childhood can impact the trajectory of an individual over the course of their lifetime. And so with these differences in mind, Dr. Manning and colleagues developed the Post-Intensive Care Syndrome Pediatrics, or PICS-P framework. If you've read or seen a tweet about PICS-P, you've likely come across this conceptual model. In this, the child experiences the PICU alongside their family and in the context of their baseline health. And with sepsis, we can see that this is where some of the epidemiology surrounding a patient's age, as well as their baseline comorbidities, may intersect with future outcomes. This critical illness experience, including a sepsis hospitalization, can then impact not only the physical, cognitive, and emotional health as described in the adult framework, but the PIGS-P framework now recognizes the impact on social health. These insults to each domain then can influence a child's overall development, leading to various trajectories of recovery, which may occur over days to decades. And in order to direct the appropriate care to children who survive sepsis, and adults for that matter, we must understand the sequelae they face. And so over the next few minutes, we'll briefly discuss examples from each domain. First, a child's physical health. Physical function is often described in terms of a child's functional status or their ability to perform daily activities to fulfill basic needs and to maintain health. This is often evaluated using overall measures of functional status, such as the POPC or the functional status scale, among many others. In the Sprout study, which was an international point prevalence study of sepsis occurring in PICUs worldwide, they found that one in five children who survived sepsis hospitalization had a new functional disability. And in addition to this general description of functional status, physical health also includes specific characteristics like technology dependence, including things like tracheostomy, tracheostomy gastrostomy tube dependence, as well as sleep and pain. And finally, sepsis can result in the development or worsening of specific medical conditions. Our group recently found that one in five children who survived sepsis developed a new or had worsening of a baseline medical condition, specifically chronic respiratory failure, supplemental nutritional dependence, chronic kidney disease, or seizure disorder within six months of discharge from the hospitalization. Moving on to cognitive health, prior studies have shown that cognitive impairments are often observed among critically ill children, many of whom who had sepsis. These impairments include a decline or worsening of neurocognitive outcomes based on specific testing, as well as deficits in attention. Risk factors for these cognitive declines include younger age at the time of critical illness or sepsis, 
and older age at the time of follow-up, as well as those who required oxygen or mechanical ventilation, or those who were exposed to opioids during their acute illness. And finally, it's important to note that these deficits aren't observed only during the initial uh, sepsis episode or critical illness hospitalization, but also um, uh, remain well after discharge. Sepsis impacts a survivor's emotional health. This was mentioned earlier in some of the studies and holds true for the pediatric population as well. Children who survive sepsis, as well as their families, have been shown to have increased rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as symptoms of anxiety and depression. And when thinking about the emotional impact of sepsis, I also often think about health-related quality of life. There have been much work surrounding health-related quality of life in the pediatric sepsis space, but recently the LAP study of nearly 400 children with severe sepsis and septic shock in the U.S. found that one in three had significant decline in their health-related quality of life following sepsis, and that this persisted to one year after discharge. They also looked at risk factors for this decline and found that organ dysfunction, requiring CPR, or other extracorporeal therapies, as well as older children were at higher risk for decline in their health-related quality of life. And uniquely, the PIXP framework also considers the social health of the child, as well as their family members, and how critical illness or sepsis can impact the ability to go to school, their relationship with peers, parental employment, as well as family finances. Our group looked at school absences following hospitalization for respiratory failure, many of whom in the cohort had sepsis, and we found that 70% of children missed school in the six months following this hospitalization. And it, when, when it comes to parents, ha over half missed work within the six months after discharge. And finally, when we think about how critical illness may impact school performance, we can look to the recently published study from the ANZIX group. This study included over 5,000 PICU survivors and found that one in seven did not meet minimum standards on testing. And when we look at the specific condition that those children who survived PICU hospitalization have, a higher proportion of children with septic shock did not meet standardized testing uh, standards compared to other acute illnesses in the group, such as trauma, bronchiolitis, or an asthma. And so sepsis isn't a condition whose impacts are limited to the acute inpatient setting, but rather it has lasting impacts after discharge and it can affect individuals in different ways. And with that, I think the next large question is how can we help and what can we do about this? One way I like to think about this as suggested by Dr. Prescott, who we will hear from next and her colleague, Dr. Angus in their JAMA review is thinking about this over the stages of a patient's clinical course. They suggest interventions promoting recovery from sepsis can be thought of in early hospital care, things to be done after discharge, and what things can be done prior to discharge, and what can be done after discharge. This structure provides a framework, but it's important to remember that some of these items or interventions may be pertinent throughout a patient's trajectory and not just limited to one time point. And as we think of some of the challenges facing sepsis survivors, we can target these interventions to those who might be at highest risk for a particular outcome. And given our short time, we'll focus on those things that can be done in the pre and post discharge space. First, as a patient's clinical course moves out of the acute resuscitation phase towards ongoing care, it's an imperative that we think about optimizing nutrition, the implementation of physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy, 
as well as medical reconciliation. And each of these must be directed to a, spe a patient's specific needs, as not all patients are going to need all of these interventions. I think a key tenet as we move towards discharge um, is thinking about anticipatory guidance. And though, anticip though anticipatory guidance is often thought of a key tenet of pediatric care, I think it can be provided to all patients regardless of their age. We must ensure that patients and their families are aware of the symptoms of PICS or PICS-P, and with that, recognize that some individuals may be at higher risk for a particular outcome. Finally, we must empower our patients and their families to know what support is available as they return home, be it hospital-related or community-based. And finally, support post-discharge is an evolving area that we in the Peds critical care community, as we in the Peds critical care community, recognize the longitudinal impact of illness, including sepsis. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that I'm not an outpatient provider and therefore recognize the absolute necessity of collaboration with outpatient clinicians, as I don't have the expertise to say what's the best approach here. And so with that, I think that collaboration with outpatient providers and pediatricians and appropriate referrals are absolutely key to ensure the best care and best outcomes of sepsis survivors. Follow-up programs and clinics have been an increasingly hot topic in the critical care community. And while many of the clinics have been general in nature, nature for post-ICU or post-PICU follow-up, there have been reports of a few diagnosis-specific clinics, including uh, sepsis. The team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia established one of those uh, follow-up clinics or follow-up programs for sepsis survivors. This program is not a specific clinic, but rather a nurse-based follow-up program in which education is first provided to families when they're in the hospital, and then they are called a few months after discharge to help with care coordination and referrals if needed. In a cost-effective strategy, this program was embedded within existing structures rather than creating an entirely new clinic-based system. And so as we bring this all together, the longitudinal care of patients with sepsis begins in the hospital and continues at home after discharge. And given the breadth of the sequelae that sepsis survivors face, it's imperative to direct this care to those at risk for a particular outcome. This care is not a one-size-fits-all but rather by considering specific patient factors, we can tailor that care to provide the best, the best chance at the best outcome possible. And with that, there's much work to be done across the care continuum to improve the long-term outcomes of children and adults who survive sepsis, as well as their families. So in summary, sepsis impacts, uh, sepsis has significant impacts both on the patient and their family during and after hospitalization. We can look to the PICS or PICS-P framework to recognize the physical, cognitive, emotional, and social health, health that can be impacted by sepsis, but we also must recognize this in the context of the individual patient. We can try to limit these impacts and optimize long-term recovery in all phases of care, including early in the hospital, as we move towards discharge and following the hospitalization. And this strategy requires the collaboration both of the inpatient team subspecialists, and outpatient clinicians. And I thank everybody for the opportunity to speak with you today and be happy to answer any questions. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Carlton, for that wonderful talk. Um, I have um, a quick follow-up question for you. 
on uh, the slide that mentions the percentage of children who miss school because of mm -hmm. um, their symptoms and what they suffer. Uh, I think that was a very large number, 70%. Um, yeah. And given what we have experienced um, in terms of virtual learning, how much of that is or can be incorporated in trying to bring that number down so they're not quite missing out as much um, and maybe having a lag in being able to move forward with their with their um, cohorts? That's an outstanding question. And I think um, really is the is sort of the next frontier and the next space that we can go to. The, the data I presented were uh, from prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, so don't reflect the opportunity of virtual learning that I think is much more pervasive um, now. I know our, um, our hospital here at the University of Michigan, and I think uh, many other hospitals across the U.S. have um, uh, school specialists um, in the hospital to help bridge that gap between uh, being, the child being hospitalized, especially those who are hospitalized for a long period of time, and uh, their schools. Um, and so I, I look forward to, to more data in that area and, and really do agree and think it's an, it's a really good opportunity to try to bridge that, um, to bridge that gap between the hospitalization and the child getting back to school. Excellent. I definitely agree. I think we've learned a lot from COVID that we've transferred mm -hmm. over to sepsis and this is yet another piece of that. So thank you so much for, for your talk. Um, we'll move on to our next speaker. Um, and as Dr. Carlton mentioned, uh, the next speaker is Dr. Haley Prescott, who also comes to us via a pre-recorded presentation. Dr. Prescott is an associate professor of pulmonary critical care medicine at the University of Michigan as well, and an Arbor Veterans Affairs Hospital. She's an expert in long-term outcomes and recovery after sepsis and COVID-19, as you've heard. Her research program on sepsis care and outcomes is funded by the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs and the U.S. Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. She's a physician lead for a Michigan statewide sepsis quality improvement collaborative funded by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan. She serves as a co-chair of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines and is a council member of the International Sepsis Forum. Dr. Prescott's uh, talk is titled, how can we mitigate post-sepsis and post-COVID morbidity? Let's proceed with her talk. Hello, everyone. My name is Hallie Prescott. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Ann Arbor, Michigan in the U.S., and it's my pleasure today to be talking about how can we mitigate post-sepsis and post-COVID morbidity. Um, I have no financial conflicts of interest. This is a hugely important topic. There are an estimated... Uh, nearly 40 million patients around the world each year who survive a hospitalization for sepsis. And over the past few decades, there's been a large body of research about what happens to people after they survive their hospitalization for sepsis. Um, and it's been shown that sepsis is associated with increased risk for cognitive impairment, functional limitation, further health deterioration and hospital readmission, as well as increased mortality in the weeks, months, even years after a sepsis hospitalization. And as a result of all of this health impairment, about half of patients who are working prior to sepsis are unable to return to work within six months. And as concerning as this slide is, 
Milder sequelae from sepsis are even more common. Things like difficulty concentrating, cloudy thinking, difficulty sleeping. And these things are nonetheless very important for people's ability to go back to work, go back to the activities that they were able to and enjoyed doing before sepsis. In 2017, the World Health Organization recognized sepsis as a global health priority and specifically commented about the importance of monitoring progress towards improving outcomes for sepsis and developing evidence-based strategies related to treatment and access to rehabilitation for survivors of sepsis. Life after sepsis is scary. Patients have new morbidity. They have increased risk for hospital readmission, increased risk for death. So how can we help? Um, I will highlight this review that I wrote a number of years ago that really tried to summarize what do we know about recovery after sepsis and how can we put our patients on a path towards recovery and scaffold them during that process. The, the, the review is really broken into sort of three sections, early sepsis care, preparing for hospital discharge, and then things after the patient leaves the hospitalization. Early sepsis care really focuses on um, best practices for recognition and management of sepsis, things that are recommended by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, as well as working to limit risk for iatrogenic complications by following the pain, agitation, delirium, immobility, and sleep guidelines. In terms of the next sections of this review, preparing patients for discharge focuses on de-escalating the treatments that were initiated for sepsis. So stopping and narrowing antibiotics, stopping and removing fluid, reviewing and adjusting medications, many of which often change during the course of sepsis hospitalization or need to be held, preparing patients for what to expect, what challenges might they face after a sepsis hospitalization, and then screening for common new impairments after sepsis. After discharge, we talk about anticipating and mitigating risk for common and preventable causes of health deterioration after sepsis, the big five being risk for infection, heart failure, kidney failure, chronic lung disease, and aspiration, working to promote functional recovery, and then evaluating and addressing patients' goals of care. When I talk about this list, one of the reactions that I commonly get is like, well, these are sort of things that we know and do. Don't, you know, don't we do these things already? And unfortunately, if you look to the literature, we find that many of these things are unfortunately not happening as consistently as we would like them to happen in practice. There are studies showing excess antibiotic duration is very common. Fluid overload at the time of ICU discharge is very common. There's a large body of literature showing that often chronic medications are discontinued in the ICU and then forgotten about. Acute medications started for temporary symptoms are often left on indefinitely. And in clinical trials that have really focused on a comprehensive medication review and adjustment of medications around the time of acute illness, we find that there can be substantial reductions in um, ER visits and hospital readmissions, which are traditionally very hard outcomes to move. In this statewide study in Michigan asking about how commonly do we provide anticipatory guidance to patients after they leave the ICU, we found that about a third of the time providers report, no, that really doesn't happen at my hospital. Another third say it's really variable. Some clinicians do it, others don't. And only a third are reporting that this is happening consistently with patients. 
This final study I'll share looking at how good are we doing right now is a study led by Stephanie Parks Taylor, who will be speaking later on in this session. Um, this was a really detailed review of 189 sepsis survivors' experience and found that for any one of the elements that we recommend, it's happening maybe 46 to 65 percent of the time, but only the small majority of patients are getting all of the recommended practices, which was important because receipt of these recommended practices were associated with improved outcomes in terms of reduced risk for readmission and mortality. So unfortunately, the answer to this question of don't we do these things already is that no, unfortunately, we don't. And so I think the question we really need to be asking is how can we improve the implementation of these best practices to enhance recovery, which we know are not happening as often as we would like or hope, and which are indeed associated with improved outcomes. There are many different answers to this question and no you know, one right answer, and certainly the answer will vary depending on where you practice. But I'm just going to share two initiatives that are happening right now where I work. The first is at Michigan Medicine, um, where we are currently piloting a post-ICU or post-sepsis consult service. The idea of this is that patients are flagged at the time that they leave the um, intensive care unit, and when they are still in the ward, they are visited by um, a clinician with expertise in the longer-term outcomes of sepsis and critical illness. They undergo screening for new impairments. They have a detailed medication review. They spend time talking to the patient about what are the common challenges patients may experience after sepsis. They review their discharge plans and ensure that they have appropriate referral to follow-up clinics. The next initiative that's happening is an initiative that's a statewide initiative. This is the Hospital Medicine Safety Consortium, which is a statewide continuous quality improvement collaborative. And um, our most recent initiative focuses on sepsis. And in addition to um, evaluating the um, use of uh, recommended early sepsis practices, such as timing of antimicrobial delivery, fluid resuscitation, things like that, we're also focusing on the later aspects of sepsis care, things like medication um, sort of reconciliation at discharge, sort of comparing discharge medications to admission medications, and is the patient being scheduled for timely outpatient follow-up. So this is a statewide initiative, and we currently have 69 hospitals participating, uh, collecting data regarding the entire course of the sepsis hospitalization, um, working to look at, you know, where is care lagging, and organizing our quality improvement to focus on those uh, elements where we think there's the greatest opportunity for improvement. One of the consistent challenges we see is just having time to provide anticipatory guidance to patients about what they might expect after sepsis. And so I just wanted to take a moment and point out that there are a number of resources available now um, through organizations such as ICU Steps, Health Talk, Sepsis Alliance. Um, at University of Michigan, we developed a COVID-19 caregivers workbook, which has a number of chapters about what to expect during hospitalization and also after hospitalization. And in contrast to many um, prior initiatives, this was made in partnership with patients and caregivers um, who were able to share their lived experience and make sure that we are providing the most kind of 
pragmatic and practical advice possible. Um, this is available on the website and we also have an editable version. So you are welcome to download this, edit it as you see fit, customize it to your hospital or healthcare system and use this to uh, counsel patients about what they can expect and what they can do to promote recovery after hospitalization for sepsis or COVID-19. So in summary, new and lasting morbidity is common after sepsis. The COVID pandemic, I think, has really underscored the urgency of this problem. We have a number of recommended practices that are associated with improved recovery and longer-term outcomes after sepsis. However, there are opportunities for improvement in our everyday care. I think there is a growing number of resources to help, in particularly for providing anticipatory guidance. Um, I think often we let perfect be the enemy of good, and I would recommend start somewhere. You know, identify where you think the biggest opportunity of improvement is at your hospital and start working to improve that. Overall, I think the five most impactful things that hospitals can do now to better promote recovery after sepsis is focusing on optimal sort of medication management and adjustment, making sure that the patient is going home on the right medications, doing a status evaluation prior to discharge, looking at physical, cognitive, emotional, and financial health, and um, connecting patients to available resources to um, support uh, any impairments that are identified, counseling, providing anticipatory guidance about what to expect, talking to patients about what their goals are. Is it survival, function, comfort, and making sure that our care is organized to support the patient's goal? Providing a structured discharge summary and handoff to the primary care physician after hospitalization and ensuring that the patient has appropriate follow-up. They're scheduled to follow up with the primary care physician and that there's someone they can get in contact with in the interim if they have questions before they arrive to that follow-up. I will close there. Thank you again for the opportunity to talk. Take care. Excellent final slide really puts all of the important points into focus. Um, and as a reminder, that was a pre-recorded talk, so we'll not be taking any um, questions at this time. And we will move on to our fifth and final speaker. It's my privilege to introduce Dr. Stephanie Taylor. She is a professor of medicine and the chief of division of hospital medicine at the University of Michigan in the US. Her research interests focus on applying health services methods and pragmatic trials to advance the learning health system and specifically improve outcomes for patients with sepsis. Dr. Taylor leads multiple NIH funded projects, evaluating transition and recovery following sepsis hospitalizations. Dr. Taylor's talk today is titled, Translating Post-Sepsis Care to Post-COVID-19 Care, The Role of Healthcare Systems. Welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you. Um, so my talk is going to be uh, translating post-sepsis care to post-COVID care. And I added and back because we're going to talk a little bit about um, something that someone mentioned already, which is um, some of the advances we've made in caring for sepsis survivors helped us on the path to caring for COVID survivors. But then also some advances we made in post-COVID care turned around and was um, helpful for recovering uh, or taking care of patients with sepsis. 
So we're going to talk about some system-based strategies to support COVID and non-COVID sepsis survivors uh, transition and recovery. And then we're going to talk about how those two overlapping conditions have benefited um, from advancements in each other. So first, I'll just kind of bring up this, this burning question in the room, which Dr. Carlton and Dr. Prescott uh, also mentioned, which is we, we have learned over the past decade that sepsis survivors continue to experience complications from their illness and poor outcomes. Um, but how do we actually help patients? We've spent a lot of time working on early sepsis management in the first few hours, but until the past decade or so, we've, we've done really little to uh, identify best practices for care to help sepsis survivors recover. And so this, is, this has changed in the past several years where there's been growing attention to the care that we deliver to survivors with an eye towards recovery. Um, Dr. Prescott mentioned the review article that she and uh, Dr. Angus wrote, uh, which really drew attention to sepsis uh, recovery and uh, laid out some best practices. And then the most recent update of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign uh, actually for the first time included recommendations regarding um, uh, care for sepsis survivors or long-term care for patients who experience sepsis. And some of these things um, include, one, discharge plans that include follow-up with clinicians that have a skill set um, that allows them to support sepsis survivors. Um, assessing for new deficits um, that both Dr. Carlton and Dr. Prescott uh, described as being quite common in patients who survive sepsis. Um, Referral to a post-critical illness follow-up program, if one is available. Um, and then uh, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign also suggested referral to peer support, um, if that's available. So we'll go through um, each of these a little bit, um, really focused on how health systems can create some of these uh, healthcare delivery models to deliver those best practices. And we'll talk about three specific um, healthcare delivery models. The first one is an ICU or a sepsis follow-up clinic. Um, most of these are branded as ICU follow-up clinics, but keep in mind that about half of patients in these clinics um, are sepsis survivors. So I, I really think we can talk about these as the same thing. The ICU follow-up clinic is a healthcare delivery model that um, kind of takes advantage of this multi-component um, delivery of care in a multidisciplinary setting, recognizing that sepsis survivors usually don't have just one complication or one consequence of their illness, but multiple complications, multiple uh, sequelae that they're experiencing. And the best way to address that is through this multidisciplinary team approach. And in the ICU clinic, it's a brick and mortar place that patients come to after their discharge um, and can see all of these different providers. Different clinics have different layouts, um, but in general, patients and their families will move kind of from room to room or the providers come in um, separately and they can see a pharmacist, um, a physical therapist, social work, um, psychologists, um, as well as um, uh, clinicians that can address medications and symptoms and those type of things. And this has been a really this, this type of care delivery was really taking off before COVID. Multiple clinics were being set up to support ICU and sepsis survivors. Um, and we were really starting to kind of grow this model of care and learn more about how it was best delivered. Some work that identified barriers to ICU follow-up clinics, and these are things that you could probably imagine. Um, lack of funding. ICU follow-up clinics are not necessarily a revenue-generating service. Um, there really needs to be a, um, 
a broad view of investment in terms of review, uh, I'm sorry, return on investment um, from prevention of long-term complications and recurrent healthcare utilization. But lack of funding, lack of physical space for the ICU clinics can be a challenge for health systems, identifying appropriate patients that are most likely to benefit, and then patient and family attendance because no-show rates are universally high in this type of uh, care delivery model. You can imagine it's, it's hard for a patient who may still be quite ill, quite debilitated, quite weak um, to actually get to physically get to a clinic um, for their follow-up. Um, these ICU clinics, though, really represented a strong foundation of how we could support COVID survivors once there was recognition that patients following a COVID illness suffered quite a few symptoms and complications for a long time, we already had this model in place of an ICU recovery clinic that could quickly be adapted to meet the needs of COVID survivors. And we started to see COVID recovery clinics or post-COVID clinics popping up around the country and around the world. The second care delivery model um, that we've been studying in post-sepsis um, care is peer support. Um, and there's been, obviously, a, prior to COVID as well, there was an increase in the availability of peer support networks for ICU and sepsis survivors. And again, we were beginning to study these and figure out how they were helpful, how their implementation could be best supported. Um, and this is a, a lovely study um, from Joanne McPeak um, on some of the benefits of peer support interventions. Um, and these are th the the three main benefits were creating a, a place for shared experience for survivors and their families, care debrief, um, and this is kind of relates to Dr. Carlton's anticipatory guidance, helping them understand where they are and what the expectations are going forward and hearing that from peers. And then there's an altruism component from peer support that we see for sepsis survivors and ICU survivors in that they have this sense of um, post-traumatic growth. Of, I've been through this really hard thing, but now I can give back and help others also get through this really hard thing. And so health systems have been uh, investing in these peer support interventions. Um, they were popping up quite a bit before COVID. And similar to the ICU clinics, this also gave us this recognition that this type of care delivery was helpful. And we knew how to implement it in a bit that really helped pave the way to help COVID survivors also have this type of support. And then the third care delivery model I will share um, of our own work that we were beginning to help sepsis survivors with is a, uh, a virtual or a remote delivered um, care through a post-sepsis nurse navigator. And this care delivery model that was invested in by our health system at, at Atrium Health was uh, placing a nurse navigator um, to support sepsis survivors in that uh, pre-discharge, peri-discharge, and post-discharge period where they're at high risk for um, complications. And so the nurse navigators would support patients entirely through telehealth, virtually, mostly through the telephone. So low resource, um, kind of easy to administer uh, healthcare delivery model to support um, sepsis survivors. And the care they provide is, is really multi-component. They, they do uh, assessment for new deficits, care coordination, connecting them for follow-up, symptom monitoring with escalation of care as needed. Um, they uh, provide uh, 
solutions for social determinants issues. Um, so really this comprehensive multi-component delivery of care through telehealth um, using our, our really phenomenal nurse navigators. And I'll just show you that this can be really successful. Um, we conducted a randomized controlled trial of this nurse navigator program for sepsis survivors. Um, and we found that patients who were supported by this sepsis nurse navigators had a lower risk, about a 5% lower risk of either rehospitalization or mortality in the 30 days after sepsis. And then even at long-term follow-up at 12 months, patients supported by the sepsis nurse navigator had a 7.2% lower risk of readmission or mortality um, at one year getting this support. And it really reinforces all the things that Dr. Prescott described as things that we think are really important in the care for um, survivors. And these, these things aren't you know, rocket science. I, I do think there will be some great discoveries in terms of how we uh, promote sepsis recovery through new medications or new uh, interventions, but really just doing these basic things really well in the transition period and the recovery period has a, a significant improvement in patients' outcomes. And so I'll just kind of get back to the, um, the kind of theme of my talk, which is how post-sepsis care laid the foundation for the care that we can provide to COVID survivors. Um, and these are kind of where I see that post-sepsis care really helped us get a head start. One was just drawing attention to long-term outcomes. You know, it took decades of sepsis um, research and care before we started paying attention to long-term outcomes in sepsis. And so I think having made that breakthrough in sepsis drew uh, attention and we were able to see more quickly um, that COVID survivors were having poor long-term outcomes as well. Um, our post-sepsis care uh, began this uh, discussion of health system investment in recovery care. Again, not typically a revenue generating service, but something that's really important in terms of best care for our patients and return on investment in terms of reduced healthcare utilization down the line. We began to identify core sets of best practices, those things that Dr. Prescott and Dr. Carlton both talked about that we began to identify for post-sepsis care, and many of them translated to the care that we should provide to COVID survivors. Um, and we were starting to see the importance of whole patient care and engaging the family for uh, optimal recovery. And then that uh, converse, so the and back part, is how did uh, our attention to post-COVID care return uh, the uh, favor for post-sepsis care? One of the biggest things, I think, was the adoption of telehealth. Um, and the, the program that I had talked about, the Star Nurse, Nurse Navigators, um, it was a virtual program through telehealth, but there really wasn't a lot of telehealth available prior to COVID. Um, and so implementing that really dramatically improved the reach that we had to touch sepsis survivors. The other thing that I think um, post-COVID care brought back to sepsis was really an attention to disparities. We began to see um, a lot of really um, unfortunate disparities in the way patients were recovering after COVID, and that also um, fed back into how we were looking at recovery for sepsis. 
So in summary, um, I do think that uh, pre-COVID advances in our post-sepsis care um, provided early foundations so that we could jump quickly on providing good post-COVID care. Um, in turn, COVID stimulated some advances in post-sepsis care that has benefited that as well. Um, I think like, the theme of all the talks in this session is that there's still quite a bit of work to be done. Survivors still experience quite a bit of poor outcomes um, and uh, we have a lot of work ahead. So with that, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Excellent, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor. That was a wonderful talk. Um, it really brought everything back to what do we need to do as we move forward um, with all the information that we've discussed today. Um, I really like your kind of focus on how this needs to be an investment for health systems, right? We're not, we should kind of pivot away from looking at this as a cost, um, or revenue type of discussion because it's really more about the long-term investment. So thank you for sharing that. Um, in the interest of time, we'll just take one of the questions from the chat. Um, the question is, do you experience the same in, in terms of problems, outcomes, and um, management in post-sepsis patients who were treated in the general ward versus those who actually were in an ICU setting? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. Um, it's it's a tricky question um, because similar to COVID, um, it's not all or none. You don't have to be in the ICU. You don't have to have severe sepsis to experience post-sepsis syndrome or post-sepsis sequela. Um, similar to COVID, you know, patients with pretty mild symptoms would also can also have long COVID symptoms. So there's not anything kind of all or none tipping point about the ICU that causes those symptoms. Although the more severe illness in either condition is related to longer and more severe symptoms. Um, so it's a tricky question. The, um, the burden of symptoms is gonna be larger in patients with milder disease because there's just more patients who had milder disease. So at a population level, the patients with mild disease who develop long-term complications is a big problem. Um, although the severity of symptoms does tend to be worse, the more severe the initial illness was. In our sepsis survivor population that we determine high risk for long-term outcomes, about half were in the ICU and about half were in uh, the medical floor. Excellent. Thank you so very much. Um, I think uh, we'll have to go ahead and move on to closing the session. Appreciate your talk and your uh, response to the question. I'd like to thank all of our wonderful speakers and our audience members for participation today. Um, in addition, I'd like to thank our many sponsors for their support of the Congress, especially Radio Meter, who is um, an exclusive sponsor for this particular session. All the sessions will be released on our YouTube channel and as podcasts starting um, every two weeks on May 2nd. I also encourage the audience to visit the Global Sepsis Alliance website and follow GSA on the various social media platforms to get more information and more details on the Congress sessions going forward. Thank you again and goodbye from all of us. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks to everybody who helped making this possible, especially all speakers, panelists, and moderators. Session 12 is already in the feed, and sessions 13 and 14 will be out next Tuesday, June 13th. Until then, stay safe, and thanks for listening.